Hey Houston, for a limited time at VisionWorks, you can get two complete pairs of glasses, frames, lenses, the works for just $49 on single vision glasses and $89 on progressives. And that's a good deal, but we offer that pricing on over 500 frames, which makes it a great deal. Right now, buy two complete pairs of single vision glasses for just $49 or two pairs of progressives for only $89. VisionWorks, we're here to help you. Some restrictions apply. See store for details. Offer expires November 10th. Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it? Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Who are the unstoppable ones? Mission Unstoppable. Mission Unstoppable. The Unstoppable Ones. You did say Unstoppable, right? You did say Unstoppable, right? What is it they know that I don't? Coach Frankie Picasso takes you on the Mission Unstoppable. Can anyone stop these people? Good evening. I am the host, the unstoppable Frankie Picasso, and you are listening to Mission Unstoppable Radio. Tonight's show is entitled Brain Rack, and well, thanks our guest Barbara Stahura for that. And we are going to focus on the lives of two individuals who have never met and yet have shared an event that, God willing, no one listening will ever have to experience. They will take us to a place that few of us ever go. It's a place full of mystery and misconception. There are many secrets to be uncovered there, as well as opportunities to create new ones. Tonight, our guests will bring us up close and personal with our most precious commodity, our brain. Stay tuned, stay close, because in a few minutes, you'll be meeting my guest, Barbara Stahura, and coming up later in the show, you'll meet Anthony Aquinasi. This is the Unstoppable Frankie Picasso, and if you're listening to us on Tuesday, November the 23rd at 8 p.m. Eastern, then you have tuned in to the live version of the show. Feel free to participate. I welcome your comments and questions. You can join us on air by calling 646-595-3741 and hitting 1 to get into the host queue, or you can join us in the chat room, which is now open. And if you're listening to the archive version, thank you for downloading it. Feel free to contact me if you need more information about me or my guests at frankie at missionunstoppable.com. Also, this show will again play Thursday on TogiNet Radio. So thank you to TogiNet Radio. I'd like to thank the good folks here at Blog Talk Radio for allowing me to broadcast over their network, and I want to thank you. You know who you are each and every week for tuning in. I have the phone lines open again and the chat room as well, so please feel free to call in or write or type any questions. The day the brain wreck happened... Barbara Stahur was busy working on an article, and she was happy to see her husband run a few errands. However, when he was late coming home, she began to worry. He had gone out on his new Ducati, and ever since he had sustained a motorcycle accident previously, he had always promised to call home if he was late. And now Barbara was worried about him. Her intuition proved to be correct, and as she called hospitals, she found that her husband had indeed been a victim of a hit and run, and he had sustained a serious trauma to his brain. From that moment on, her life had dramatically changed. All that mattered was getting Ken well. As she was thrown into the role of caregiver, Barbara soon discovered that it came with a price, and she was soon having to cope with extreme emotional exhaustion, a clinical condition called compassion fatigue. A writer by trade, Barbara had long journaled for emotional healing, and this time would be no different. She turned to pen and page to let out her fears, frustrations, and her thoughts of the day. 
and after Ken's injury, she began to wonder if people with TBI might benefit from what is often referred to as reflective writing. She, cre- she created and began leading journaling workshops for people with brain injuries. And out of these workshops evolved the book, After Brain Injury, Telling Your Story, which she co-wrote with speech therapist Susan B. Schuster. After Brain Injury, Telling Your Story has been hailed as a landmark book for people with brain injury and their friends and family, and a gentle process for uncovering the injured and recovering self. So please welcome Barbara. Good evening, Barbara. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm good, Frankie. Thank you so much for that wonderful introduction. Oh, well, thank you. I'm just so happy that you're able to join us this evening. Barbara, you you mentioned in your book, What I Thought I Knew, (laughs) that everybody has a story. And I think you're right. We all have a story. And you have a pretty incredible story yourself because for over two decades, you worked as a freelance writer. You left corporate America and decided that you were going to work from home, you know, live that dream, be your own mm-hmm. boss. But also for two decades, it, you had, you had, it was a little bit of a lonely existence. And I think that you had almost given up on falling in love, finding someone to love, finding someone to share your life with. And that was okay. You were independent. You knew how to carry on. Mm-hmm. But then you you moved to Tucson. And yes. a chance article in a local newspaper ran an interview with Ken Willingham under Tucson, Tucson's most wanted, like, bachelor of the day. And something compelled you to respond to him. What was it? Well, first of all, um, let me say that it was um, not really an article in the newspaper. It was the Tucson Weekly, which is the alternative paper here. And at that time, it, in the personal section, they were running a like a half-page interview with a single person, and Ken happened to be that person that week. And ah. um, and now when Tucson's Most Wanted is it comes later, when after his brain injury, um, that's a, a a segment of the local newscast when they. They they do a uh, a story on an unsolved crime because Ken's oh, um, okay. accident was a hit and run and the driver took off and to this day we don't know who it was so just to clarify that okay um, great right but back to the um, little interview in the Tucson Weekly um, they also had a picture and I thought it was a very handsome man I liked the way he answered the questions um, and so I took a chance and called and um, I think Ken said about thirty or thirty two women had responded. And I guess I'm the one that stuck. <laughs> so, and, well, and I had, yeah, I had been divorced about 25 years by then, so it was a long time. Now, you didn't have any children. You chose not to have children. Right, uh-huh. With so, your first husband. Right. Any reason for that? Um, not particularly. I guess I just don't feel very maternal. Okay. And um, I just had chosen not to have kids. Okay. Mm-hmm. And 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 so you were able to fully outpour all all of that love to to your new husband. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> Which is always a good thing. Yeah, he was definitely always worth a good way. So really, it was nine months to the day after you you got married that mm-hmm. Ken's accident happened. Right. It was a hit and run. A driver made an illegal left turn in front of him, which is like the most common. Um, right, it is. Causes for motorcycle accidents. Mm-hmm. And 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 down he went. Mm-hmm. What was it like when you arrived at the hospital? Um, <clears throat> it was um, 
terrible. Um, I had called Ken's friend Gary to take me to the hospital because it was all the way across Tucson, and I knew I was in no shape to drive. And so um, we got there, and we were directed to go to the ICU, and the doctor met us and took us in. Um, You know, Ken had a a ventilator tube down his throat. Um, His um, right hand was up in a sling because it had been broken. He had a, a cut that had already been stitched on his forehead, um, and I think it was a ventilator that scared me more than anything because, you know, you see in the movies or on TV someone has a ventilator and you know it's not good. Yeah. But um, at that point they had just put it in ma- mainly as a precaution just to help him breathe. And he wasn't comatose. He was not in a coma, but he was rather delirious and he was kind of thrashing around. And his eyes were swollen shut, except I think it was his right eye a little bit. He could open on one corner. So when was he saw me, he come. I'm sorry? Was his face swollen up? Could you tell that his no, brain was No, his face wasn't, he... just his eyes. And okay. um, kind of black and blue. And um, he could see me out of that one little slit on his eye, that the part that he could open. And so he saw me and he calmed down. I don't know if he knew exactly who I was, but he recognized me in some way and it was, I had a calming presence on him. Or I was a calming presence for him. So. Mm-hmm. So that that happened good. with a friend of mine who, whose husband had a stroke. He was very young. He was only 40. Mm-hmm. Um, thrashing around, but when she was in the room, he would settle. And the right. doctors and nurses kept saying, you know, come back, come back, we need you to keep him calm, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that, that kind of happened with you, too. Mm-hmm. Every yeah. time I came into the room, if Ken was upset, um, he did calm down. So that that was a very good thing. Now, did they ever tell you, did they do um, the Glasgow Coma Scale on him? Was, was Did they know the extent of his injury? Did they tell you anything like that? Um they did tell me, but um, I don't. You know, it's been so long; I don't remember. And sure. he never was in a coma. Okay. Um, if he was unconscious, it was just very briefly that first day. So um, even though his injury, I think, was diagnosed in the beginning as moderate to severe, um, he was able to recover pretty well. Fortunately. I mean, you you were had waited two decades to get married. Right. You finally find the love of your life, and you're thinking, oh my God, he's going to be brain dead, or he's going to be a vegetable or he's going I'm going to have to change his his diapers or something. What, did you think of that at all or or was You know, it just... I I don't think I ever did. Um I was so stunned by his appearance and how bad he looked. Um and I don't remember and I might have, but at this point I don't remember ever wondering how he was going to be. I think somehow I just believed he would get better, but that at at the same time I didn't I had no experience with brain injury, so I didn't know how bad a brain injury could really be. So what about the doctors? Did you, have, did you have confidence in your doctors that they had 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 um, you know looked after a number of brain injuries? Did, did you feel like they knew what they were talking about, or how, how um, confident were you with the medical personnel? Um, I I hardly ever saw the doctors. Um, the neurologist at first um, they did a scan, a CAT scan of Ken. And the neurologist didn't find anything, really. And so he wouldn't talk to me. The nurse in the ICU just bulldogged him for a couple of days till he came up and talked to me. <laughs> Excuse me. And um, he finally came up and said they couldn't find anything on the scan, which isn't unusual because a CAT scan or an MRI, um, it, it often cannot look deeply enough into the brain to see damage. Um, but there can be extensive damage that isn't picked up on a scan. Um, so, yeah. Oh, go ahead. 
No, I was just thinking because you know you're you're in in the states and I'm in Canada and our healthcare is certainly different. But what mm-hmm. would what would a, somebody be looking at in terms of dollars, let's say, um, for a loved one who who suffers with a brain injury? What what could happen to your family? Well, um, it could devastate someone financially. Um, I would assume. Fortunately, we had we had very good insurance through Ken's employer, um, but the costs can be astronomical. You know, depending on um, how long the person is in the hospital, what kind of rehabilitation they need. Um, and one thing I found out, too, though, which is very sad, is that a lot of insurance companies do not pay for outpatient rehab. They think, oh, it's not necessary or we're just not going to pay for it. And many times it's the outpatient rehab, as, as in Ken's case, that really helps them uh, recover as far as they can. How long was he in the, in, um, the hospital, the, a trauma hospital? How long was he in a trauma hospital for? He was in the hospital for 10 days because um, I think a day or two after he was admitted, he developed aspiration pneumonia because he had been taken out of ICU. Then when he developed pneumonia, they took him back to ICU for a couple of days, and then he went down. He stepped down a level. I think it's called critical care. So he was there for 10 days, and then he was And then he went to, to a rehab hospital? A rehab facility, right. And how right. long was he there for? Um, let's see, he was away from home a total of 40 days. And that included the 10 days in the first hospital. And then um, one day before he was supposed to come home from rehab, he developed a pulmonary embolism. Oh, so geez. he was rushed back to another hospital for the treatment of that, and that was five days. I think he was there. And then he went back to rehab for a little bit. So for you, you you had um, you, you were the caregiver, the one and only mm-hmm. caregiver, and and you developed this. Um, this caregiver's, you know, this emotional mm-hmm. overwrought, I guess. Is, is, right. what is, what is it, what's it compassion called? Compassion fatigue? Yes, compassion, compassion fatigue. fatigue. Right. So right. how did that manifest for you? Um, I was, I felt like I was walking around in sort of a semi-hysterical state all the time. I wasn't sleeping very well. Um, I, I think it was maybe five or six days after the accident, I ended up in the emergency room because I was having chest pains. I knew it wasn't a heart attack, but uh, my neighbor made me go and get myself checked. And so it was a very rapid heartbeat. Um, And I was just, it's hard to describe. I was in a sort of a very strange state. It's like when I was with Ken, I was a little calmer, and when I wasn't with him, all, about all I could think about was him, even though I kept up the things I had to do around the house and whatever. Um, but it was like we were tethered almost, Ken and I, and I was afraid that every time I left left him that something else bad would happen to him, which is pretty irrational because there was nothing I could do anyway, but um, that's but how I felt. But good for that tether, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I believe that. I, I think that it was probably true. Mm-hmm. And and you probably felt like you couldn't breathe because if you fully breathed, then it would be you know you might lose something or. So it is a was, kind of a, right. It was very strange. I think on the outside I probably looked calm, but uh-huh. um, I I knew I was um, I was frightened and I was very sleep deprived, and just like I said, sort of semi hysterical on the inside most of the time. Now you uh, turned to journaling. And uh-huh. you are also a certified instructor of Journal to the Self, right? Which is the method of reflective uh, writing. You started to journal for yourself 
every day while you're sitting with him in the hospital, reading mm-hmm. out your thoughts, um, fears, all of that. And then when you thought about this being an exercise that would be good for, um, you know, traumatic brain injury, how how long be, between, you know, um, can leaving the hospital that day or can being in the hospital to, to the time that you started a program? It was actually, I think, about three or four years. Um, the way it came about was that um, the local newspaper here interviewed me for an article they were doing about traumatic brain injury because apparently there's a huge number of TBIs here in Arizona. And someone um, in town who's had several brain injuries contacted me to see if I could create a create a creative writing class for people with brain injury. And I'm not qualified to do that, but that gave me the idea that maybe a journaling class or some kind of journaling workshop would be helpful because I knew how helpful journaling is. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, oh, go ahead. No, I just I was just going. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> so um, I went to see Susan Schuster, who had been Ken's outpatient speech therapist, and she was a, she's a great speech therapist, and we had become friends. So I proposed this idea to her, and she liked it. So I put together a proposal. Um, to take to her um, uh, facility, her C- the CEO there at her facility, and they liked the idea. And so um, I created this. Um, it's a six-week journaling program for people with brain injury, and it eventually, in 2009, evolved into the book After Brain Injury, Telling Your Story. So at what level were these patients that um, you saw with brain injury? Right. Most of the patients... Um, were fairly high level. Uh, most of them had been um, patients of Susan's, so we knew their capabilities. Um, mm-hmm. I think there were, we've been we've done this group now twice a year since about 2007, and um, many of the people have come back and repeated because you know we've watched them progress through the years because they 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 enjoy the group so much and the writing and the sharing. Um, but uh, one man came in. Um, he had been in a rollover accident. He was a quadriplegic with a brain injury. They told him he'd never walk again. He walked in on crutches to the group. So, you know, he was very determined. And then there was one young man who was probably the um, most disabled of anyone in our in our groups. He, um, he could write maybe two or three sentences in ten minutes, which is the, t- the normal time I give for the writing exercises, and... Um, mm-hmm. And he could not speak too well because one of his vocal cords had been removed. But he had such a spirit and such a spark of life about him that, I mean, he just brightened up the whole room. And he was very enthusiastic. Um, and so, I mean, he contributed a lot to the group, even at his level. Now, one of the things that you start off with in, in your book, After Brain Injury, Telling Your Story, is just that um, – do you remember what happened to you? Mm-hmm. And it, it's simple and, and yet probably very difficult for some people. Um, I mean, they may have heard what happened to them, but did they actually remember the event? And and I know for myself that validation, you know, that something happened to me, something bad happened to me, and, and I want people to know about this, or I need to say this, or I need people to hear me say this, is really important. So I think this, this journaling... Is, Maybe this was done in a group, I, I'm assuming, um, right. this right. program that you did, um, was 
self-validating, and yet, you know, with, within the group, if they chose to read it, um, they could. Mm-hmm. Is that the way it, it works? Right. Okay. I th- yes, I think the sharing is is one of the best things about the group because they sort of build their own little community, and they realize that there here are other people who have been through much the same thing they have been through. Um, Because I would venture to say that the people in the groups, until they had a brain injury, didn't know anybody who had a brain injury. Right. And some of the people, you know, live by themselves or don't have many family members here, or um, maybe their friends have left them, deserted them. And so they need someone for that kind of validation and support that's so important after a trauma. And given that the other people in the group have been through a brain injury, they all know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And they can really um, empathize with one another. I found it interesting. Um, one of them was your loss list. What did you lose mm-hmm. from your life? Mm-hmm. And and I can just read here. Kirsten talked about empty spaces, and she said the brain injuries left me with an empty space that used to be filled with a certainty about who I was and what I strive to achieve. A lovingly uh, dysfunctional family, tons of friends, professional friends, colleagues, fulfilling and challenging work. Um, these are these are all things that she had and, and she felt that she had lost um, a body in excellent physical condition, laughter, joy, fun, the means to pursue her passions. It's very sad. Mm-hmm. Well, the book is it's sort of, um, it takes them through an arc from the accident, or maybe I shouldn't say an arc, more of a progression from the time of the accident or whatever caused the brain injury, such as maybe a surgery or something, um, mm-hmm. through um, things like loss and change and grief and anger. But towards the end, we we come back to what's hopeful about their situation and what positives do they still have in their lives. So because it's important to deal with the things like the loss and the grief and the anger, mm-hmm. but it's also important not to stay there, not to stay stuck there, um, because there, there are always positive aspects um, and the people in the group show me this every time. Every time we come to the part about writing about the positive things in their lives, they come up with amazing things. What was the most frustrating thing um, for for Ken? I think probably the most frustrating thing was the memory problems. Um, he's a computer programmer, and so um, and he's pretty intelligent. And so he used to be able to hold a whole lot of information in his head. And the way he describes it now is that he used, it's like his brain used to be a long shelf, um, and he could put a whole lot of stuff up there and not lose any of it. But now, because of the memory problems, it's only a short shelf, so he puts something on the front and something falls off the back. Right. Um, and it's a great way. Good yeah, it's, it's a wonderful metaphor. And so um, and so it's, har- it's harder for him to learn, learn new things now. Mm-hmm. And um, he says that procedurally he's good. He can follow procedures very well, but dealing with concepts, especially new concepts, is more difficult than it used to be. And what were some of the um, the tips and tools that he used to help with his memory loss? Uh, let's see. <clears throat> it's been a long time now. I'm trying to think. Um, well, he worked with Susan a lot in, in his therapy she gave him a lot of exercises. He also um he's done some different brain training programs on the computer, things like that. Um and it's been almost 7 years, so he's had some gradual. He had a lot of improvement in the beginning and then it's been more gradual. 
since then. And how so you said I'm sorry, you said it's almost 7 years and yes. the first the 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 most or the majority of of the healing happened in how long? Oh, you know, it's hard for me to say, I don't know. In the first couple of years, I think. Okay. Um and one thing I'd like to say is that a lot of the doctors say, oh, well, you have two years to recover from a brain injury, and that's it. You're not going to recover anymore. Um, and they're finding that's not true. I think that's real old-school thinking now because of something called neuroplasticity, which is the brain can regenerate cells our whole lives. Um, you know, right. they don't, it doesn't stop. And so, And, of course, it depends on the injury and many other factors, but it's possible a lot of times to retrain your brain even after a brain injury um, in, in unexpected ways or ways that a lot of the doctors can't predict. So I would say, I mean, never give up hope and never stop trying to improve um, your brain function. And and the caregivers, because I know oftentimes the caregivers are um, are invisible. Yeah. You know, people come up and go, oh, how, how are you, Ken? How are you? Um, mm-hmm. But they forget, how is Barbara? So right. how... What is what advice do you have to the caregivers? I guess the biggest piece of advice I have for family caregivers is to take care of yourself. It's so easy to, and I think this might be true more for women too than for men because we're sort of socialized to be the caregivers anyway, but um, we tend to forego what we need to do for ourselves to take care of our loved one. Um, and it's true that a lot of family caregivers get sick or die early, or they are because they are more stressed than the, than the person they're taking care of. You know, mm-hmm. they have all the responsibilities now. For instance, if you know the breadwinner in the family has the brain injury, and so the spouse has to step up and take over all the duties that the other parent had or the other partner had to do. Maybe and that they might include parenting, might include working more. You know, everything else. Right. Um, so the caregivers have to find ways. To make sure that they stay healthy and and as they they just have to take as good a care of themselves as they possibly can. You you're listening to Barbara Stahura. You can go to her website at www.barbarastahura. That's S-T-A-H-U-R-A dot com. She's the author. She's the author of See, I have a brain injury. <laughs> After brain injury, <laughs> telling your story, a journaling workbook, and what I thought I knew. And I'm just going to see if our next guest is here. Anthony, is that you online? Yes, I'm here. Hello. Hey, how are you doing? Very well, thanks. How are you? I'm excellent, thank you. So let me just introduce you to Anthony Aquinasi. He was a special ed teacher, and on the morning of September 23, 1997, he was on his way to school for an early morning football practice, if I remember correctly, when a motorist made an illegal left turn, another left turn in front of a motorcycle, and Anthony's life was irrevocably altered. Now, his Glasgow Coma Scale showed that his brain was about as responsive as a tree, and he suffered massive injuries and had to undergo numerous life-saving surgeries, including neurosurgery, open-heart surgery, lung surgery, plastic surgery, and general surgery. Now, Anthony astounded his doctors with his miraculous recovery. And in 2000, he was awarded the Curse to Come Back Award from the Center for Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto. And his first book, Second Life, Second Chance, The Teacher's Chronicle of Despair, uh, Recovery and Triumph, was awarded the Eric Hoffer Award. Uh, Since then, he's written two more books, including Starting Over, A Survivor's Guide, and uh, Vendika's Creek, which is a teen fiction. 
novel, I believe. Now, post, post-accident, Anthony also went on to get his master's degree in education, and today he's working as an elementary school teacher. Do I have everything correct? You got it, Frankie. Excellent. Now, Barbara, Barbara's husband was riding his motorcycle when, you know, a driver, a hit-and-run driver had made an illegal left turn. And I just found out that both of you were wearing showy helmets. I don't know if that means anything or not. <laughs> but I remember you, you, you saying that you believed that it had saved your life. Yes, yes, certainly. So what is the difference today, Anthony, from where you from where you were? I mean, you were... You were working out um, to to represent Canada in in the Olympics in judo. You had been a former bodybuilder. Your body was in incredible shape, and I'm pretty sure that that had you know a lot to do with your survival. Um, but post but post accident, from where you were, you know, the day you woke up to where you are today is you know light years. Yes, it's very very different. Uh, I'm a I'm a different person t- today than I was in comparison to back then. Back back um even what 5 6 7 years ago you had to deal with um emotional you couldn't control your emotions sometimes you're angry. Yep, emotional ability uh you know serious problems with my emotions not being able to to control my anxiety or my depression. Uh this all is Compounded by one's cognitive and cognitive difficulties that that I was experiencing. I know you had a special relationship with um, with with little yellow notes that you could plaster everywhere to remind yourself yes. of things. Sticky notes. I, I've come to really love the yellow sticky notes, and uh, <laughs> I post them everywhere in my house, in my classroom at school, all over my books that I read. They're everywhere. And they serve and as a great you, memory strategy and a great visual reminder, a visual cue for me to remember different things that I need to remember. Do you still use a Palm Pilot? Uh, well, I've upgraded. I've uh, certainly used uh, an assistive, assistive uh, handheld device, but it's, it's an iPhone that I use. Oh, that's great. That's great. So, you know, Barbara was talking about the benefits of journaling. Um, she had created a program for brain injury survivors to, to journal, and you know, you had written your book, and in some ways, that really was the journal of what had happened to you. The the first book, um, you know, Second Life, Second Chance, was really about life in the hospital, about coming yeah, through yeah. that 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 trauma. So, in some ways, I, I think we can uh, correlate that to to the journaling that that she found to be very beneficial uh, to the TBIs. Um, your second book, though, Starting Over: Survivor's Guide, really takes us from from post you know post accident and how you use strategies and how you um, got yourself back into the real world. Let's say. Yes, absolutely. My my first book was uh, really uh, it, it was born from uh, my journaling. I uh, would write down a daily journal to myself as I was going through. Uh, through the rehab after after coming out of a trauma hospital, and I'd have to just write down notes to myself, and it became very cathartic for me because it enabled me through time to be able to look back on previous journal entries and see how far I'd come and what I'd been able to accomplish. And 
and it's through all these journal entries and notes that I've that I made for myself that uh, I was able to to uh, create my first book. And then subsequent to that, I decided to write another book that might help, might be a benefit to other survivors who are who are experiencing some similar difficulties that I that I experience. Now, I, I'm I'm looking through Barbara's book on on um, after your brain injury, telling your story, and and you know one of the one of the stories that I mentioned earlier was the empty spaces, not feeling like you. And I'm sure that you've experienced that. How long did how long did it take for you to feel like you, Anthony? Oh, that's a good question because uh, I'm still growing into who I am today. Uh, it's 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 very difficult when one makes a comparison between who you are today or who I am today in comparison to who I was because it does result in a lot of uh, you know questions and sort of frustrations and what ifs and maybes and you know things that I don't well, maybe, want to experience. Maybe, maybe not. Okay, well maybe not go back and say. You know, I was this guy, and I was the bodybuilder, and I was the guy who, you know, could do all of these things. But do you feel comfortable in your skin today? Do you feel like, yeah, you know what, I'm I'm Anthony, and, and this is who I am, and, and I feel good about me? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm 100%, but uh, it's, it's a big process for me. But uh, certainly over the years, I've grown a lot stronger and uh, been able to adapt and uh, and accept my situation with, you know, very... You know, much with 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 much more um, what's the word? You know, be with open arms as opposed to 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 denying it and 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 ignoring my my difficulties. And now I accept it, and I know what I need to do in order to cope. So you you really had um, suffered a traumatic brain injury, and you were catastrophic. And when I said that your you know your Glasgow Coma Scale was, I think, what was it three? Yes. Yeah, so which really was about um, you were brain dead. Well, that's what the doctor said. The doctor said uh, that the three, they laughed. They sort of chuckled with me when I when I go back and visit them, and because I, I volunteer in the hospital there, and they chuckle and they say your Glasgow Coma Scale is so low that it's the same as this, what this table would get. The table would get yeah. a three, and that's what you had as well. So it's absolutely and, uh, phenomenal and miraculous that you were able to to go to one of the toughest universities, University of Toronto, and get yourself a master's degree in education post-accident, post-Glasgow Coma Scale of 3. How incredibly difficult was that? Yeah, that was, that was really tough. Uh, very, very difficult, uh, but it's something that I've always wanted, and uh, I refuse to, to, to give up and refuse to say never, and... I just forced myself through it, but it's throughout that entire process that I was really, really forced to learn these strategies that I've that I've written about in my second book, and, and I had to use them. I had to use them religiously and obsessively in order to cope and get when through you, the master's. When you first went back to school, when you first worked with your mom, let's say, in the school, because you were a teacher, and um, after your accident, you, you went back and, and volunteered uh, to work in a classroom, I remember you saying that you were afraid to talk to people. You didn't know how to have a conversation with people because you couldn't remember things. You didn't know if what you were going to say was the right thing to say. And sometimes you would write a script for yourself. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I I had to do that a lot in the early stages and even after. Um, you know, several years had gone by. I'd have to write, write notes for myself and what I would say. And Nowadays it's 
I wouldn't say it's that bad. It's I still I still have difficulties of of um, you know processing information very quickly, and when someone makes a comment or a joke, and find it difficult to respond very very quickly. And so, if I had that piece of paper, that would be helpful. But I'm no longer as anxious, and I no longer um, really feel that that urgency to to have a comment. Uh, or a rebuttal or a reply to whatever they said they might state or say. Do you still find it difficult um, with lots of noise coming from different, you know, around you? Is it is it is it difficult to um, to concentrate and hear what people are saying when you're surrounded by noise? Yeah, I find that difficult, and I prefer to I pref- much prefer quieter environments, but. <clears throat> But you chose Sometimes. an elementary school to teach in. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Uh, the class that I have is not <laughs> certainly not a quiet class. And uh, what grade are you no, teaching you just, today? I'm teaching uh, a junior grade, grades four, five, and six. Wow. Okay, that's great. That's great. Barbara, Anthony, I'd like you to meet each other. And Barbara, you've been listening to Anthony speak um, from the work that you've been doing with brain injury survivors. Um, Sound common to you? Sound, you know, you've heard this kind of stuff before. I have, yes. Um, and um, Ken went through some of the things with. Um, he had a Palm Pilot, and he still has it, but he doesn't have to depend on it as much anymore. Um, and Anthony, what you said about um, your journal being a record of what you've been through, and you can go back through it and see how far you've come. Um, that's one thing I talk about too in, in my groups. Is that's one good reason for keeping a journal. Yeah, absolutely. I, I uh, fully endorse that. I fully support that with anybody. It's, mm-hmm. it's a remarkable way to see how far you've come, and you realize, oh my gosh, I was doing that back then, or I was, you know, unable to do that then, but now I'm able to do that. It's it's, it's very good for one's self-esteem and self-concept, and uh, overall, it's great for one's recovery and healing process. Right. Now, Barbara wrote about um, in in her book about people writing about their losses. And also about their gains. Did you ever make a list of all all of your losses, Anthony? And and if so, did you um, ever do a gratitude journal after? And, and just you know, you may have lost a lot, but you also gained a lot. Oh, absolutely! I realized that at how much. I mean, I, I I in the initial stages, I one's you know going through the grieving process and how much you've lost. But over the years, I've realized how much I've gained and. And I've become the person I am today without because of the accident. So in hindsight, I wouldn't change the accident. You know, if someone said to me, "Would you change that day?" I wouldn't because it became, enabled me to become the person I am today. And uh, I realize how much I've gained, and you know, the strengths that I've been able to discover in myself that I wouldn't have been able to discover had it not ha- taken place. And so I'm I'm very grateful for for everything that's taken place in my life up to today. Um, you had you had trouble sleeping, and you went to a sleep clinic, and and that's something that is is common with brain injury survivors. Um, Barbara, did did Ken have problems sleeping after his brain injury? Um, well, at first he slept a lot because you know a healing brain just sucks up a lot of energy, um, and you know he still has trouble sleeping well, but um, I think that's kind of been true most of his life, so. Um, if he's not sleeping well, I'm not sure it has anything to do with the brain injury. 
And Anthony, what about you? How are, how is your sleep now? Because you weren't getting restorative sleep. No, I still don't. <laughs> still I don't. still have an ongoing sleep problem, and uh, you know, I have to take medication and and do other different strategies like relaxation uh, techniques and things of, of that nature. But uh, it's 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 a problem for me. Now, you you for a lot of years you've gone out and and spoken to brain injury survivor groups. What is the one thing, um, or what are some of the things that, that you talk to them about? What is it that you want them to know or the takeaways that you want them um, to go home with? I know one of them would probably be don't give up hope. Um, I think that one of the things that I do emphasize and I speak about a lot is that, you know, that yeah, the experiences that we have in life they're directly related to the quality of our thoughts, you know. How you know how we want to view something, that's that's really how it's going to affect us. Mm-hmm. And if you have a difficult moment in your life or have a challenging period in your life, you got to find a way to change your thoughts and work on your thoughts in order to to work through this difficult situation. Another another thing that I talk about is is you know how important it is to to actually focus on your strengths and. Uh, it's using your strengths to get you through the difficult periods in your life because um you know it's we all have our weaknesses we all have our strengths and it's our strengths that are going to carry us through not our weaknesses and if you just focus solely on your weaknesses then uh, that's not going to be supportive of any growth for yourself but if you focus on your strengths and you use your strengths to help you get over the difficult times then you're going to get through things a lot easier and uh It'll be, you know, it'll really help you cope with your weaknesses. You know, one of the things I talk about as a coach um, for people is surrounding themselves with people who, who are good for them. Basically, if you are somebody who wants to endorse a positive lifestyle and you hang out with negative people, then it's going to be very difficult to remain positive. And so sometimes you have to let friends go. Did that ever happen to you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, Did you have to let negative people leave your life? And certainly, I mean, you surround yourself with with what you want in your life, and you surround yourself with with the sort of energy that you want to bring into your life. And uh, I I now surround myself with with like minded people, and uh, you know it's beautiful. But uh, yeah. if somebody comes life that uh, that causes ripples in your you know in your energy or your comfort zone, then you know, you've got to make a choice whether you want that in your life or not. And, and for the most part, uh, I just surround myself with uh, people that are good for me. Good you know, you, you are, um, you're an incredibly disciplined person. And, you know, being a bodybuilder and, and, and really um, used to discipline. And when you talk, I, you know, you can hear that come through. You have to do this and you have to do that. And, and it's you know, you just have to keep doing it. How do you um, motivate other people who may not be as disciplined as you to to do that? Because I think that is very special. It's a very special part of your character. How do you motivate people? I can motivate people by telling my story, and hopefully they can see some some similarities between my story and and what they might be experiencing. And maybe that can be in itself be a motivating factor for them. And um, but. You know, motivating people is very, very difficult. And I know myself, I was very, very depressed and unmotivated in the early stages of my recovery. And 
it's survive what what you just referred to what you just mentioned about surrounding yourself with positive people. I surrounded myself with people that were really really good for me and uh, and all that their positive energy rubbed off onto me and and it helped motivate me. So with respect to me motivating other people, I'm there. I'm there to support people in any way I can and uh through giving talks if my story can help them great. And if they want to contact me afterwards, great. I've got numerous Probably have more brain injury survivor friends than uh, than uh, non-brain injured. And uh, you want to tell folks you know, how they can get in touch with you right now since you brought it up. Oh, they can What's email it? me or they can go to my website and contact me. And your give us your website, please. www.anthonyaquinasi.com. That's about A N T H O N Y A. Q U A N hyphen A S S as in Sam Sam E E elephant elephant dot com. Excellent. And they Thank can contact you. me there, and uh, I'd be happy to uh, correspond with anybody if they wanted some support or to ask me some questions. Absolutely, I, I do that a lot, and uh, it's something I really I really enjoy. Barbara, helping. you took you took some photos. Um, of Ken when he was in ICU. Mm-hmm. Um, photos that you were going to use later on, if you right. needed to, right. uh, to to make sure he never rode his bike again. Yes. He had had an accident. How far before was it that he would had another accident? Um, it was 18 months before, you know, what we call the brain wreck. He had another accident um, where he broke most of his ribs and I he cracked his pelvis in a shoulder blade, and that was actually a picnic compared to the brain wreck. But um, sure. after the brain injury, I was so devastated, and he had been so stubborn about riding again after the first accident. Um, it was – I didn't know how much longer – how much more I could take if he started riding his motorcycle again. And mm-hmm. um, so I took those, and I didn't show them to him until quite a bit later, but as it turned out, he eventually decided to um, quit riding himself. Um, it was a hard decision because he really loved it. He had three motorcycles, and he really loved it, but he knew that, um, he, especially after the brain injury, that it wouldn't be a good idea for him to ride again, and I'm very grateful Anthony, for that. Yeah. Anthony, you still riding? Absolutely. Wouldn't stop it. Thought. <laughs> <laughs> I love what you, it. What do you? What have you got today? What are you riding? I'm riding a Gixxer GSXR 1000. Oh That's wow! Very, yeah, it's it's quite a step up from my previous bike, which was a Suzuki Katana, only a 600. And I've always loved the Gixxers. I've always loved these sport bikes and the fast bikes, and I decided to go for it and. Uh, there was a deal one day, and and I jumped on it, and uh, my salesman uh, helped facilitate the deal, and I got it, and uh, I love it. It's my passion. It's, it's, what color is that? It's yellow, bit of black. It's it's awesome. If you go to my website, you'll see it. So you didn't have to change your color. <laughs> That's great. Barbara and I were talking just before the show started, and she said, "Boy, you know, if I I would tell them if they have a mother, if they have a daughter, boy, like they shouldn't ride." <laughs> how does your How did your mother deal with it? 
after oh, they were months and months. Obviously, of, uh, uh, you know, sort of traumatized when they found out, but I had no choice. I had to tell them because in the year 2002, I think it was, my story came out in Reader's Digest, and I'd already been riding before that. I'd already gone back to to motorcycling, and mm-hmm. Reader's Digest thought it'd be great to have me on the, the a picture of me on the cover with me on my motorcycle since I was a feature story for the magazine. So they took the picture of me on my motorcycle and they put it on the cover, and then when my mother found out that the magazine was coming out, she wanted me to bring her a copy. And as soon as she said that, I panicked and worried because I hadn't told them that I had bought another motorcycle and that I was riding again. So I had to bring the magazine to my parents' house, and and uh, I had gently and you know very sensitively approached my mother, and I let her know that, Mom, I have something to tell you. I've got to let you know something before I give you the magazine. And she was saying, no, I want to see the magazine. Give me the magazine. I said, Mom, hold on a second. And I let her know that I started to ride a motorcycle again and that I was very, very safe. I had learned a lot from my accident, and uh, I've got full full uh, leather protection, the gr- correct motorcycle equipment and the gear, and I was going to be okay. And uh, so, you know, in time, as the years have gone on, they, they completely trust that, 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 that I'm a much safer rider, and I'm a very aware rider, and uh, so it's not an issue nowadays. So you wouldn't say that as a brain injury survivor your reflexes are less than what they were before? No, no, no. I'm uh, I'm acutely aware when I'm on my motorcycle. It's it's like my it's almost I'd say it's almost like a meditation for me because I'm in a different zone and I'm very aware of everything that's around me and and it's not something I ever want to experience again. But at the same time, I don't want to be I don't want someone else's. Uh, mistake to to determine what my future will look like and what I can and what I can't do in my future. And so I make that decision and uh, I got back on my motorcycle even though I was very very scared and anxious, but it's something that I love and I I just can't stop it. The um Barbara had had um suffered from from compassion fatigue as a caregiver. Do you know if 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 your parents um, or your mom had suffered from anything like that when looking, you know? Well, I'm you? not sure if it's actually the, the the compassion fatigue, as I think you mentioned, but uh, I know they experienced a lot of depression, anxiety, and certainly a lot of emotional issues surrounding the whole event, and that would definitely lead to, to fatigue and, and uh, the, the, well, the depression is the fatigue is part and parcel of depression so so i know that they have experienced a number of uh emotional uh symptoms or whatever the word may be yeah you i mean you've been you've been volunteering at the hospital um the same hospital that that you healed in have you um met other brain injury survivors there and their families and have you seen their how their families suffer or Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's uh it's amazing. It's when you when you meet somebody there and I actually don't meet them because they're a patient in the in the intensive care unit and it's only afterwards when they come back and their family their families find a 
know about my story, and the families bring them back to the hospital to meet me, and uh, and then we develop some sort of a bond and relationship where we can correspond, and it's it's amazing. It's amazing how you know life brings people into your life for a certain reason, and. And, uh, Barbara, so, have yeah, you have, have you met, uh, met met people like Anthony? People who, um, you know, were brain dead and and found their way back to being able to speak as as you know coherently and um, passionately as he does. Um, I don't know if the people in any of my journaling groups have been declared brain dead, but I know several of them um, have been in uh, comas for a while and things like that, and they they have really fought to come back. Um, some of them are still um, on the way back, um, but I know that they're all working as hard as they possibly can, and they're all really determined, like Ken was, to recover as much as they possibly could. What are what are um, what or who are some of the people that it takes to to come back? I know that that you mentioned the speech therapist. Who who else is involved in the recovery? Well, of course, you know, there's the medical team, and I know for me, um, like I said earlier, I didn't really have much contact with the doctors, but the nurses were great. They were supportive of me also, as as they were of Ken. Um, And then there's, you know, the different therapists, occupational and speech, physical therapy, um, sometimes counselor, uh, you know, a regular therapist, um, psychologist or whatever, um, and just family and and friend support. um, Employers can help. you know, just many, many people. Everyone Anthony, can play did, a part. Was there anything missing in her list of people that helped you? Uh, no, I, I would certainly agree and, and with all the, the the people that she that she just mentioned. But I would also say myself. Uh, I think the survivor is very, very important, and one has to. One has to rely on one's own strength and not just rely solely on other people. And I'm not suggest- suggesting that she's even su- 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 stating that. Mm-hmm. But for myself, yes, I had a lot of support from numerous people, and that is so important. And that's fabulous that, that she's running a group for other survivors. Those are the things that really, really help survivors. But it also, if a survivor is going to to, to you know, try to succeed in in coping with the difficulties that they that they that they will face. They have to take all the, those supports in order to make themselves stronger, mm-hmm. and and then they can rely on themselves. Because when you're when you're relying on other people, uh, you, you, you at least from my own experiences that you you fall and you fall hard when when someone isn't there to help you. But if you're relying mm-hmm. on yourself, you've learned. Through from the supports that 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 have been put in place for you, then uh, you know it's it's like a regrow re rebirth basically, and uh, and well it is, a little... and, and it's a lot of um, a lot of new new brain waves need to open up, and neurons and all sorts of things are happening, and, and it's a relearning experience mm-hmm. through the whole yeah. thing. Yeah, very difficult. Um, probably very difficult to stay. Um, happy. Maybe you don't even feel that for a long time. Uh, no, it must be scary. No, dude, it must be scary not to, you know, remember things and 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 feel like you. And um, if people are listening and and they have loved ones who have recently undergone a brain, you know, traumatic brain injury, or they're still recovering from a traumatic brain injury, 
it's good to know that there's hope and light at the end of the tunnel that that um like Barbara you said it it, it goes on beyond the 2 years that many doctors give you right, um, you can go for a lifetime you're, you're, yeah you're still recovering in some ways um each year i'm sure you're doing more and more with your life yeah that's- Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think it is for for me for myself, and it is a lifetime. It's going to be because I'm developing a new identity as I'm going. Every single year, things change, and I forget what took place two years ago. But uh, I focus on the now. I focus on today, and uh, I continue to grow and develop new strengths. And and it's the strengths they become ingrained in myself, and that becomes who I am. I, I may forget uh, you know insignificant things, or but uh, the really important things. Sorry, I was just I was just wondering how difficult it was for you to um, use your imagination and create a work of fiction over writing a piece that was, um, you know, like uh, your own work, you know, your own life story. How difficult! Well, it was very difficult, but it was also very, very freeing, very exhilarating. Uh, as a teacher, I, I, I read a lot of books. I read a lot of books with my students and uh, try to endorse and and promote certain books to my students. And uh, I've taken from from my experiences in reading a variety of different authors' works in order to create my own. And I've I brought in my own story. There's a twist in the in the, in the fiction, and there is brain injury in my story, oh, okay. but it isn't. Uh, it isn't brain injury in the here and now. It actually takes place in the future, and it's how I see what I see the world with brain injuries and with head injuries, how I see it's going to go. Because um, we've become such a technologically uh, advanced society. Everything is, is, uh, is we're so tight, you know, technologies are everywhere. It surrounds us in every, in every way, shape, and form. And, and I see it now now uh showing its head or showing itself in 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 healthcare and medicine and uh it's what i've written in my book it's what i see what i what i think quite likely is going to be hap- taking place in the future with head injuries you know and, um barbara uh, I think we, I think there were some statistics on your site about something like five is it 5 million or people each year suffer from brain injury I think it's about one and a half million suffer a brain injury, and about five million people are living with uh, permanent disabilities because of brain injury. And you know, even though these these you know two were related to motorcycles, many of them are not. And right. you know, people like well, especially in the United States, the coming home from from any of the uh, the wars, bomb you know being uh, mm-hmm. surrounded by bombs, or or kids even falling out of uh, grocery carts onto their head can can result in in brain injury, so um, I didn't want to make this, you know, bash the motorcycle because I certainly um, love them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't want anybody to get that wrong idea, but uh, that's quite a number. And I think in Canada it's something about 168,000 a year. Mm-hmm. I don't know, Anthony. Do you know those stats? No, I don't know the statistics, but uh, I do know that it's. I think it's the leading cause of. Of death or disability here in Canada, and uh, wow. even more than uh, than heart disease, and the number, that the amount of incredible. finances involved, the amount of dollars involved in uh, taking care of somebody who sustained a traumatic brain injury, it's, it's 
heavy. It's huge because of all the rehab therapists and all the, the doctors and just the entire support team in place needed for one person. Well, that then has to uh, be considered for all the people that sustain a brain injury. And again, like you said, it isn't just motor, motor vehicle accidents. Brain injury could be something as, you know, someone not getting the, the, the necessary air, you know, anoxia or yeah. mm-hmm. on swimming. Let, let me just say um, thank you again to both of my guests, Barbara Stahura. Um, you can visit her at www.barbastahura.com. Anthony Aquinasi, you can visit him at www.anthonyaquinasi.com as well. And thank you both for being my guest this evening. We've got about 20 seconds left on the show. And so I, I really want to thank you both for coming and spending some time with me, and, and I really appreciate it. Anthony, it was good to hear from you again, and, and Barbara, it was really nice to meet you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Frankie. All the best, okay? Yeah, you too. Bye, Barbara. Bye-bye, Frankie. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Barbara. We'll see you next week on Mission Unstoppable. Take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, Houston. For a limited time at VisionWorks, you can get two complete pairs of glasses, frames, lenses, the works, for just $49 on single vision glasses and $89 on progressives. And that's a good deal. But we offer that pricing on over 500 frames, which makes it a great deal. Right now, buy two complete pairs of single vision glasses for just $49 or two pairs of progressives for only $89. VisionWorks, we're here to help you. Some restrictions apply. See store for details. Offer expires November 10th. Hey, Houston. For a limited time at VisionWorks, you can get two complete pairs of glasses, frames, lenses, the works, for just $49 on single vision glasses and $89 on progressives. And that's a good deal. But we offer that pricing on over 500 frames, which makes it a great deal. Right now, buy two complete pairs of single vision glasses for just $49 or two pairs of progressives for only $89. VisionWorks, we're here to help you. Some restrictions apply. See store for details. Offer expires November 10th.